listening to the magical words, while becoming through his mother's magic, the people in the stories. The fire burns steadily in the hearth, and his mother tells him that the fire should never be allowed to go out, because if it does, the soul leaves the house. Da agrees. There were houses in Ireland, he said once, where the fire had burned day and night for more than a hundred years. In this house, he said, it had burned since John and Rebecca Carson moved in, long ago before the boy was born. Robert Carson later learns that before he was born there were two other children, his brothers, who were born and then died in another house. And when they died, Da poured water into the hearth and moved to this place to begin again. To the left of the hearth is the door to the bedroom where his mother and father sleep each night. A dresser stands outside the door, its drawers holding clothes. To the dresser's left is the back door leading to the west. He knows that no stranger should ever leave through the back door, because he would take with him the luck of the house. He knows, too, that when there's a death in the house, the coffin must leave through that same back door to be taken to the west, to the setting sun, and the blackness that follows. On the ceiling, great beams cut from bog oak form a huge A, supporting the layers of thatch and sod that lie beneath the slates. His father built this house to last. The walls are brick, stone, cut rushes that had soured, all bound together and made smooth by river mud and lime wash. They are two feet thick, a house built like a fortress. Even when he is alone, he is safe. His father was a blacksmith, John Carson. The forge stood about forty yards from the house at a muddy crossroads beside a stream. Those horses need shoes, he would say. Those mail carriages need their wheels repaired. And so he built his forge first, before he built the house, before Robert came into the world. The forge was the heart of the shop, as the hearth was the soul of the house. At some point, without ceremony, his father gave him the gift of work. He was allowed to work the bellows. His skin pebbled when he saw the fire suddenly brighten from his own efforts. In those hours in the forge, his father would say almost nothing. The smoke and sparks rose from the fire into an iron canopy and then through a metal chimney into the empty sky. On cold, clear winter nights, the boy would sometimes gaze at the distant stars and wonder if they were frozen sparks from his father's forge. He asked his father about this one chilly night. Aye, he said. They all go up into the universe, son. Do they ever burn out? Never. When you see a shooting star, lad, that's a spark trying to find its way home. The most important of all the things in that shop was the anvil. Powerful, mysterious, indestructible, and magical. It was the only object in the shop not made by his father. The anvil had come from Scotland and weighed exactly 171 pounds. The shape was simple and elegant, a kind of small table with a great curved shoulder called the horn. The body was iron, but the face on top was made of steel two inches thick. When his father struck it with a hammer, the ringing sound rose into the air and sometimes was answered by the calls of birds. When the sun began to set in the west and his father was finished for the day, he would hang the bellows on a high hook against one wall to keep it from small dangerous invaders, then sit a while in silence, and then walk to the house. 
On Saturday nights, after the boy was sent to bed, his father bathed in a large wooden waterproof tub lashed with iron bands he'd made himself, the joint so tight not a drop ever touched the flagstone floor. One Saturday night, when Robert was six, he saw his father enter the new room that he was building as an addition to the house, the room where the boy soon would sleep. The boy slipped off his cot and eased into the shadows to watch him. His father untied the cords of the burlap package and removed the skull of a horse. Robert's heart tripped. On one of their walks to Belfast that summer, his mother had shown the boy a horse's skull off to the side of the road, bone white and sad. The Carsons did not own a horse, and that lonesome skull made Robert whisper a growing desire to ride a horse. He told his mother that above all he wanted to ride a horse with his father. His mother hugged him that afternoon and said, I, a horse, I'll talk about it with your father. Dad gazed at the skull for a long moment, holding it in two hands as if it were a chalice, and then in the light of the lantern he squatted low and began to mix mortar in a tray, thickening it with dry straw. He placed the skull in a hollow place in the wall, and then used the mortar and some kiln bricks to hide it. Then he paused, placed his fingertips against the now blank wall, bowed his head, and spoke for a minute in a strange, clotted language. Robert hurried back to the makeshift cot and lay awake with his eyes closed and his heart thumping with excitement. A horse's skull in the western wall! He heard a smooth click as his father shut the door of the unfinished room, hiding the wall with its new and secret resident. Da's boots fell separately to the floor. He walked on bare feet across the flagstones and knocked gently on the bedroom door. The boy's mother whispered words Robert could not understand. Then she was at the hearth, her smell altering the air, and the boy heard her pouring water into the great tub, water that gurgled, water that murmured. Eyes shut tight, the boy heard a rustling of clothes, and then Da's voice saying, Ah, as he eased into the water. Then there was another unbinding of clothes. Silence. Then she said, Oh. Robert opened his eyes, squinting so they couldn't see what he was seeing. His mother was standing in the tub facing his father, her flesh ripe and flushed in the orange light of the hearth, her breasts full and dark-nippled, her belly round with a thick black V of hair below. She squatted and slipped into the water with Da, and Robert closed his eyes in shame and fear. He could hear small splashes of water, wordless grunts of approval, a sighing stillness, a chuckle, and then silence again. The slippery sound of water and soap, of hands on flesh, a long soaking silence like peace. Finally the sloshing sound of a body rising from water, and the boy peeked again. His mother was drying herself with a rough cotton towel, smiling, drying under one heavy breast and then the other. His father rose from the water. Robert closed his eyes. His father was seldom in the house. He had customers in the shop, travelers, wayfarers, men with horses needing shoes, or men awaiting sickles to be carried to harvests, or men with ruined tools to be ground and hammered into second lives. They called him Mr. Carson if they were strangers, or John if they'd been there more than once. Sometimes, when the moon was high, the boy saw other men emerge from darkness, 
great early men with wild orange hair, their shirts cut from animal skins, and Das stopped work and retreated with them into the tool room. They used the language Robert heard when his father buried the horse's skull in the wall, and they never called him John. At other times, Da borrowed a horse and packed his tools and kissed Robert's mother on the cheek and then rode off into the hills. He was gone for three or four days, a week. The boy was always afraid that he would never return. He has work to do, his mother said. There's so few like him. He needs to help people who can't do what he can. There were no houses near them and no children his age with whom Robert could play, and yet he was not lonely. He often spoke with Bran, their dog, and the dog understood him. Bran had dark red hair and a setter's long nose. Sometimes he threw sticks and Bran raced after them, his ears flapping, his legs a blur. In the house, Robert helped his mother as she prepared food or tended the fire. Peddlers came by in horse-drawn carts, and his mother haggled with them in her teasing way and bought what she needed. Or they would go to town together for beef and fish. They walked to Belfast on Saturday mornings, passing St. Edmund's Anglican Church into lanes gradually more crowded with farmhouses and people. Many houses were crowned with English flags, but even they had molted into permanent gray under the steady gray rain and the steady gray smoke from the coal fires. The only flashes of color came from the scarlet jackets of the English soldiers. In Belfast, the boy never felt part of the people, and, he was sure, neither did his mother. As he waited outside the shops, boys stared at him, at his clothes, at his face. What are ye? they'd say. Papist or prod? And the boy learned to answer, Prod. Because he thought that was what he was, a Protestant named Robert Carson. The trip home from Belfast always filled Robert with relief and expectation. Sometimes his mother even skipped along, singing a song, accented by Bran's sharp barks, all of them happy to leave the grim city behind. At home, on all days, Robert loved watching his mother transform the raw materials of their journeys into sumptuous meals. She then vanished into the bedroom and washed her face and hands, and always donned the silver earrings the boy's father had made for her long before Robert Carson was born. They were each shaped as double spirals, with small clips that attached them to the lobes of her ears. When his father came home, they ate gloriously tasty stews. But there was more to Rebecca Carson than cooking, or cleaning, or guarding the life of the fire. Across those endless days when Da was in the shop, she was teaching her son many things. To read, for example. There were few books in Ireland then, but they owned a large Bible, and she read the stories with the boy, or told her own versions of the tales. Over and over again, he asked her to tell him the story of Joseph and his brothers and the coat of many colors. She told it in different ways each time. Sometimes it was a simple tale of vanity. When he was a boy, Joseph had a coat of many colors and was vain about it, flaunting the coat before his brothers. Which is why, when his father sent him to find the brothers in the desert where they were tending flocks, they first thought of killing him and then sold him to some passing men on camels. Sometimes the tale was told as a story of exile. In Egypt, Joseph came to manhood as a slave. A slave is someone owned by somebody else, Rebecca Carson explained in a grave voice. They have to work for that person and don't get paid. 
They still have them in America, the slaves I mean, and a few other places too. When the boy was a week short of six years old, he started school. The schoolhouse stood to the right of St. Edmund's, Church of Ireland, where his father and mother joined the other proud Protestants each Sunday morning at nine o'clock. The teacher was the same Reverend Robinson who thundered on Sundays. The curriculum was simple, reading, writing, arithmetic, and Protestantism. How can you tell a Catholic from a Protestant? the Reverend Robinson asked one day. By his rotted teeth, someone said. And someone else shouted, By the smell, Egypt. Hear, hear, the Reverend Robinson commanded. Don't call a fellow Protestant an idiot. Robert had never heard any of this at home, and so he said nothing. He saved his religious fervor for Bible class. He could talk about Moses and Abraham and Isaac, and about Aaron's rod, which was a shepherd's staff and how Aaron could turn it into a snake or use it to change water into blood. He did make some friends, Billy Painter, Sam Longley, Tommy Hastings, boys like those from town but better dressed with faces shiny and scrubbed, bursting with mischief. As time passed, Robert discovered that he was good at some things in school and poor at others. He had good penmanship, with a reed pen dipped in an inkwell, and that same talent could be used for drawing. He would draw their house, and the hearth, and the forge, and pictures of Bran and his friends at school. But he was not as good at arithmetic as he was at reading and writing, or even Protestantism. Once he got the hang of Protestantism, it was easy. Catholics were bad, Protestants were good, and the King of England was the greatest man alive in the world. But arithmetic, at first, was more difficult. Abstract without a story. Then one day, near the end of the second year at St. Edmund's, it all came together in some mysterious way. Robert was adding a column of about seven double-digit figures. He looked for the first time at the column as if it were a ladder. In his mind, he climbed up the right side, counting as he went. Twelve? Yes. Write down a two and carry the one. Then he climbed down the other side and had seventeen wrote it down, and ended up with 172. The trick was to make it a journey, not a story with heroes and villains, just a going from one place to another, counting miles, maybe, or trees. The boy now realized that some journeys were not stories. On some journeys, nothing really happened. You just kept taking steps. Once he had that in his brain, even arithmetic seemed easy. It wasn't the same as a story.